Good morning, church family. Um, today, I want to spend some time talking with you about the topic of God's waiting room. God's waiting room, which is the sermon title for today. And we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2 as we continue our series. Um, even though it's, uh, it's been difficult to connect with a ton of you, uh, it's, been, it's been good to connect with some of you and hear from you about how things are going, how you're doing in the midst of this pandemic. And uh, it's been super encouraging to hear from a lot of you about being really honest and vulnerable, frankly, about the things that God is revealing, um, things about you. And, 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 and there's a couple themes that seem to arise as I'm hearing from people about various things that God is revealing in them. Well, one is, and I could totally relate to this, um, a lot of you are sharing that God is revealing in the midst of this, this pandemic that uh, you're being confronted with stuff in you that you thought you were sort of done with. Anybody relate? Things you're thinking like, you know, I thought I, thought I was like past that. I thought I was more mature than that. Um, you realize there's some anger issues that are still there. Uh, there's some insecurity issues, some envy, some fear. And, and, and what this pandemic, a little shaking, is doing in you and in me is, is that a lot of these things are being dislodged, if you will, and kind of rising to the surface. Uh, um, church family, what are you doing about that? In this space and time when you have perhaps more time and space than you've ever done before to address some of these underneath the iceberg kind of stuff, are you, are you bringing those things before the Lord? Uh, the other thing that I'm hearing from a lot of you, and I really appreciate the honesty behind this, is, is that this, this pandemic is also revealing what I would call the authenticity or the genuineness of our faith. Uh, I'm realizing that many of us infer the goodness of God from good things happening to us. Many of us infer the goodness of God from good things happening to us. In other words, circumstances drive so much about what it is that we believe about God, who He is, and what He says He will do. Do we really believe that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do when circumstances seemingly dictate otherwise. Uh, the Apostle James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, one of the early leaders of the first church in Jerusalem, is writing to a group of Christians who are going through tremendous suffering, trial, and hardship. And in uh, his book, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, this is what he says as he writes to these Christians. He says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. That's the message translation of James chapter 1. And what he's saying is, he's saying, under pressure, under hardship, difficulty, you and I discover something about our faith. Here's what we discover. We discover what it is that we really believe versus what it is that we maybe pretended to believe and maybe what we were taught to believe as a child but maybe not fully embraced as 
an adult? You see, when circumstances deteriorate, artificial, counterfeit, hey, what's in it for me, faith, deteriorates right along with it. Faith is not how we get God to do stuff. You know, faith is not some superpower. You know what faith is? Faith is confidence that God already did something. Faith is confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he promises he will do. Faith is ultimately a response to God. It's not a way to leverage God to do something he wasn't going to do. So here's the thing I think maybe all of us may be experiencing, and that is this, the thing that we want removed, the thing that we want to get out of, the thing that we're saying, God, fix this right now, is often the very thing that God uses to grow us and mature us. Say it differently. The tension in our lives is often the epicenter of God's activity in our lives. Let me say that again. The tension in our lives is often the epicenter of God's activity in our lives. Let me show you. Whatever it is that you're struggling right now with right now, the tension that's causing tension in your life right now, is God using that to get your attention? The tension in your life right now, is that the thing that God has you on your knees right now? The tension in your life right now, is that the thing that's maybe causing you to get back into the Word or see community like you've never done before? That's what pressure does. It exercises our faith and is often the epicenter of God's activity in our lives. I love what Hudson Taylor, the famed missionary to China, said, he said, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer to his heart. So here's a prayer that I'm praying for myself about various tensions in my life. My prayer is simply, God, use this until you choose to remove this. Father, use this until you choose in your wisdom and love to remove this. We're continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk. And as we've seen, we're looking at what it means to live by faith in challenging times. Habakkuk is a prophet that lives during one of the most devastating times in the nation of Israel. By the way, just, just want to throw this out there. It's amazing how poor leadership could cause so much devastation and destruction to a society. And that's what's happening in Judah under the rule of Jehoiakim. And, and what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about a theme in Habakkuk that's found everywhere in Scripture. It is one of the ways that God not only reveals our true faith, but matures it and grows it. What is that? It's what Scripture calls waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Um, it, it's uh, human nature to avoid things that we don't like. Would you agree? We avoid things we don't like, like vegetables, uh, scary movies, uh, airports for me. <laughs> and way at the top of the list for me of things that I avoid because I don't like is waiting. I hate 
waiting. And my, my kids and my wife at home are laughing right now. Every day, every second of my life, I try and avoid waiting. I hate waiting in line at the grocery store. I hate coming to a red light stop and having to wait until it turns green. I hate waiting for my doctor's appointment as well as a dentist's appointment. I hate, I'm going to be real vulnerable here, I hate waiting for Amazon Prime to deliver the very next day. I hate waiting. Do you know why? Because I prefer control. I prefer control. And waiting is a vivid reminder that I'm not in control. And nothing is more irritating for me than to be reminded that I am not in control of anything. And by the way, if you hate waiting, the chances are you also live a hurried life. I talk about that a lot. There's a correlation between hating waiting and, and, and hurried life. Here's the things about hurried life. I rarely say things that I regret when I take my time. I almost always say things that I regret when I'm in a hurry. I rarely make bad decisions when I take my time. I almost always make bad decisions when I'm in a hurry. See, I understand why Abraham, after waiting 11 years for God's promise of a son, do you remember, took matters into his own hands because he got tired of waiting and had a son by the name of Ishmael with his servant, Hagar. I've birthed a handful of Ishmaels in my life because I got tired of waiting. Can you relate? See, I've learned that anything worth having is worth waiting for. Anything worth having is worth waiting for. I, I realize that I don't appreciate the things, for me, that come too easily, come too readily. Can anybody relate? I, I, don't, I don't appreciate things that come with that much effort, but when I am forced to labor, when I am forced to work, when I am forced to discipline myself, when I am forced to sacrifice for something, the appreciation of it, wherever it is, is always greater. Always. So is there anybody who has spent some time recently in God's waiting room? Am I talking to anybody? Anyone know what it's like to ask God to give you clarity about your future? God, open doors where doors need to open, close doors where doors need to be closed, but you've been waiting on God. Anyone know what it's like to wait as you navigate prolonged season of singleness, as you wait and say, God, am I ever going to be married? Am I ever going to have a family? Anybody know what it's like to pray for healing and wait? Pray for a job opportunity and wait? Anybody know what it's like to pray for salvation of your family and friends and have to wait on God? A critical aspect of living by faith, church, is waiting on God and trusting God's timetable. A critical aspect of living by faith, what it means to follow Jesus, is to wait on God and trust God's timetable. And if you've ever waited on God, you know this. And that is God never, God never seems to work on our timetable. Can I get an amen? God never seems to work on our timetable. He's always missing our deadlines. Why? Because the Bible says that God has an entirely different view of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, But do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It reminds me of a story of a man who asked God, God, how long is a million years to you? And God says, a million years is like a second. And the man asked God again, God, how much is a million dollars to you? And God says, a million dollars is like a penny. And the man 
replied, God, can you spare a penny? To which God replied, sure. Just wait a second. Just wait a second. Living by faith requires waiting on God and trusting God's timetable. And that's hard. That's so hard. Which is why the Bible is constantly saying over and over again, God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. God does everything just right and on time. But people can never completely understand what he's doing. God is always on time, the scripture says. He's never late. He's never early. Here's what that means. That means that we can trust God in the waiting because God will not make you wait one more second than you need to. God will not, our wise, loving God will not make you endure one more thing than you need to. You can trust him on that. However, there's the other part too. And that is that God will also not come one second too early and preempt the good work that he is wanting to do in your life. Because he loves you too much, God will not, as James says, preempt the good work that he wants to do in your life and in my life that he could not do during other seasons of our lives when we don't have to wait. To us, waiting is wasting, but to God, waiting is working. To us, waiting is passivity, inactivity, but to God, waiting is working in us. A deep, profound work. You know who knew something about waiting? If you read the book of Psalms, and if hopefully you are, you realize that the Psalms are full of psalmists, especially David, who is constantly crying out because he is waiting on God. One of these Psalms, by the way, is Psalm 27. Here's what Psalm, as Psalm says. Psalm 27, David cries out. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, in just the opening verses of this psalm, you get the sense that David is facing enormous pressure from within and also from without. He is surrounded by his enemies. And he's surrounded in a situation that's causing fear, anxiety. And throughout the psalm, David cries out. He says, God, I want deliverance. God, do something about my enemies. But the interesting thing is the psalm doesn't end, though, with an account of God's sudden and miraculous provision. You know how the psalm ends? The psalm ends with David committing to doing something that comes least naturally to those of us who are afraid. That is, he commits to waiting on God. It's amazing. Psalm 27, verse 14, this is how it ends. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. By the way, let me just stop here and say this. When you read through the Psalms, learn something about what the psalmists do. You know what they're saying? They're constantly preaching to their hearts. They're constantly preaching to their hearts. See, a great deal of what ails us, and this is what Psalms teach us, a great deal of what ails us is we're constantly listening to our hearts and rarely talking to our hearts. We're constantly listening to the lies of our hearts. Anybody relate? Fears of our hearts, the doubts of our hearts, and the self-condemnations of our hearts. And those voices are loud and clear. But how often do we preach to our hearts? How often do we talk to our hearts about who God is and what he has done? 
David and the psalmist, they're constantly talking to their hearts, preaching to their hearts. David, right in this psalm, he says, David, seek his face. David, wait on the Lord. The psalm ends with an exhortation to wait on the Lord. Now, David realized that the pressure and the enemies surrounding him and the challenges, they're not going to all of a sudden disappear because he gets up from his knees from praying. So in the final lines of his song, he's telling his heart. He's telling his soul. He's preaching to his heart and saying, rest in God. Take refuge in God. Soul, heart, wait on God. Because in the waiting, there's transformative work that happens. And so I said, what is that, Peter? The word wait itself gives us some clues to the kind of work that happens. This is, this is so powerful to me. The word wait in Hebrew originally had this meaning of to twist and to stretch. And the noun form of it meant line or cord or thread. So a vivid picture emerges from this Hebrew word to wait, which, by the way, is kava, kava. And that is... It describes the making of a strong, powerful cord or rope by twisting and weaving the various ropes together. The Bible is saying, this is so powerful, that in the waiting, there's going to be some stretching, some twisting, and some weaving. Can any of you relate? Of course. But check this out. The Bible is saying that the result of that stretching, twisting, and weaving is a strong, powerful, enduring, persevering, unbreakable, unshakable rope. To say it differently, in the waiting, visualize this, in the waiting, God so tightly wraps himself around us and we so tightly wrap ourselves around God that our weaknesses and our frailty are replaced by his strength and by his courage. I say that again. In the waiting, stretching, twisting, God so wraps himself tightly around us and we so wrap ourselves tightly around God that our weakness and our frailty is replaced by his strength and his courage. It's what some scholars have called the exchange life. In the waiting, our weakness is exchanged for his strength. Our fear is exchanged for his courage. Our anxiety is replaced and exchanged by courage. And our insecurities are exchanged for his security. To us, waiting is wasting to God waiting is working. Do you know where else this word appears? One of the other places is Isaiah 40, 28. Some of you are familiar with this passage. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives, check this out, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How does that happen? Verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. By the way, can I just say this? If dependence is the objective, 
And hopefully you realize dependence is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. Weakness is an advantage. And God says in the waiting, it is when I am weak that what? He is strong. In the waiting, God replaces our weakness. Not after, not after when things are over. During the waiting, our weakness is replaced by his strength. Our fear replaced by his courage. The powerful thing is in Psalm 27, David never says that his situation changed. You know who changed? David. David. When you wait, your situation might not change, but I assure you, you will. You may discover that the reason for all your, for your waiting was for all your benefit because you're the one that needed to change. Could it be, could it be that in the hands of a wise, loving God, the waiting is the crucible in which God's doing a transformative, deep work, child? Well, what we're going to do today is we're just going to launch into Psalm 2. We're just going to look at a handful of verses, and we're going we're gonna to park on this theme of waiting, by the way, for a good two, three weeks, okay? So I'm just going to paint a broad picture today about what waiting looks like, and then we'll just kind of delve in the coming weeks. Just to catch you up, chapter 1, Habakkuk starts with the great complaint, a prayer to God. Do you remember verses 2 and 4? God, why are you allowing all this evil and justice suffering to happen? God, do something. Then God comes back and responds in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1, and God says, Habakkuk, it's going to get even worse. I'm going to use the Babylonians, Babylonians, to, 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 to invade your country and to carry you into exile. To which Habakkuk says, God, now I'm even more confused. That doesn't even make any sense. And he prays in verses 12 to 17. Then we come to chapter 2 after Habakkuk has launched his second complaint. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed, verse 4, but the righteous will live by faith. In these short verses, there are tons of verbs and metaphors that get to what waiting is and how we do it. And today I'm just going to talk about one, one, and that is this, wait relationally. What does it mean to wait on God? It's to wait relationally verse one paints this powerful picture let me let me break it down for you when he says i climb up to my watchtower and stand in my guard post every ancient city had city walls that guarded it and the highest point along the city wall was what's, what was called the watch tower and can you guess who guarded the watch tower the answer is the watch men the watch Men, and by the way, the prophets in the Old Testament are called spiritual watchmen. Ezekiel was one of them. What did the watchmen do? Well, most of the time they had three broad responsibilities. One was they were up high enough to be able to look at the herds out on the open 
fields. Another thing they were able to do is to look within the city, within the city, and see crime happening perhaps and other, other, other events in the city. But the most important job of the watchman was what? Was to be able to look out and look for enemies and attacks. That, could, that having that perspective was absolutely critical for the citizens and the army within the city to prepare. By the way, the other important thing is to be able to look out, not just see the enemies coming, but see reinforcements, allies coming. So even though you might have been in danger, if you could see the allies coming, you knew that you were going to be okay. Now, if you're a watchman and the security of the city and the entire citizens depends on you, what part of the day did you dread the most? Nighttime. The nighttime was a time that you dreaded the most as a watchman. Why? Because this is before floodlights and helicopters and all this artificial lighting. When nighttime came, you couldn't see anything. And if you can't see anything, how do you guard the city? How do you protect the city? If you couldn't see anything, what you're, what, it was incredibly stressful because your most important job you wouldn't able to do this. The other thing is that, that, that the temperature would drop so dramatically at the nighttime that physically the cold also was something that was incredibly difficult to endure. So what did you look forward to? If you're a watchman, if you're up all night guarding the city as a watchman, what is the one thing that you look forward to? The morning sun. You look forward to that morning sun. Because when the morning sun came, all of a sudden you saw with clarity. You had the perspective that you didn't before. Being able to see enemies' attacks, being able to see reinforcements. You were, you were given clarity, perspective that you didn't have before. The other thing is the sun would come and give you warmth that you didn't have before. The morning meant light and salvation and sight. With that backdrop in mind, listen to this psalm. So powerful. Psalm 135. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman. For the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Here's the powerful truth that this psalmist is saying. And if, if something resonates with you, say amen through the screen. Just as the watchman waits with eager anticipation for the morning sun, because the sun is coming. The morning is coming. The psalmist says, I too will wait for the Lord. Just as the watchman waits with hopeful expectation for the morning sun, because he could count on, he could rely upon the morning sun to come up, so the psalmist waits with eager anticipation, hopeful expectation for the morning sun. So too, just as the psalmist can wait knowing that the sun is trustworthy and faithful, so our God is trustworthy and faithful. Just as the morning enables you to see clearly that you didn't see with clarity before in the dark, see things that you didn't see before. So the morning sun all of a sudden enables you, the Bible says, to be able to see, see what? What God is up to, what God is doing. Perspective that you didn't have before. Just as the sun is a source of warmth and light and life for the watchman, the watchman is saying, so is our God, source of light and salvation and life. Isn't that powerful? 
Just as the watchman waits for the morning, my soul waits for the Lord. What is it saying? Waiting for the Lord is confident trust in God's character and who he is. Waiting for the Lord is trusting and believing that God is true. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. That his promises are things that we could rely upon and rest in. We could rest in his love. We can rest in his wisdom. We could rest in his timing. I love that just as the watchman waits for the morning, so my soul waits for the Lord. And I said earlier, why we, we, we wait relationally? Why, why, why wait relationally? I want you to notice something here. And we saw back in Psalm 27. And this is so critical. And if you don't get anything from today, I hope you walk away with this. Psalm 27, do you remember? David says the same thing that the psalmist says in 130. That is this. He says, verse 14, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. David is under enormous pressure. But do you realize the cry of his heart? Do you notice the cry of his heart? The cry of his heart is not wait for God's answers. The cry of his heart is not wait for God's deliverance. The cry of his heart is wait for the Lord. Why? Church, get this. Because when you're waiting, you're not just waiting for God's answers. You're waiting for God. When you're waiting, you're not just waiting for God's deliverance. You're waiting for the Lord. One posture will change you. The other will frustrate you. Are you waiting for God, brother, sister? Or are you waiting for God's answers? See, so much of our waiting, I'll just speak about myself, so much of my waiting is only about what God is going to do, right? Fix this. Come through on that. When, where, and listen, there's nothing wrong with asking God for answers, asking God for deliverance. Contend for those things. Cry out for those things. Your Father loves you. Your Father is for you. But let me ask you a question, Christian. Do you want God's heart? Or are you only after what's in God's hands? Do you want God's heart? Or are you only after what's in God's hands? And too often, we only want what's in God's hands, not His heart. And please listen to this. When you love the answer from God more than you love God, that answer will actually take you further away from God. Let me say that again. This is what's at stake. When you love the answer from God more than you love God, the answer will actually take you further and further away from God because here's what will happen. Either God will not give you what you want when you want it and you'll be bitter because you're only in this for what you can get or, or, or God will give you what you want and that's called judgment. Read Romans chapter 1. 
What Paul says about what, what Paul says about God giving us what it is that our flesh and our desire wants. It's God's mercy that he does not sometimes give us what we ask of him. If God is true life, true joy, true peace, true beauty, why would a good, loving, wise God give you anything that will take you further away from true source of joy, true source of life, true source of beauty that is God himself. Maybe what we perceive as unanswered prayers, church, are often God's greatest answers. God is far too wise and far too loving for him to give you and me everything that we ask for. And someday we'll thank God for the prayers he didn't answer just as much, if not more so, for prayers that he did. Can I get an amen? And by the one other thing, we'll pick up on this theme next week. There's an enormous difference between no and not yet. One of the first things I teach my children is that there's a difference between no and not yet. They're not the same thing. Are we any more mature than children who do not know the difference? Are we any wiser than children who do not know the difference? Don't love the answer from God more than you love God. Do not love the answer from God more than you love God. Are you seeking God's answers or are you seeking God? Are you waiting for God's answers or are you waiting for God? Are you waiting for Lord's deliverance or are you waiting for the Lord? If you seek answers, you won't find them. But if you seek God, if you seek God, the promise of Scripture is that the answers will find you. Let me end with this. Because I can't end sermons without pointing you to the gospel some way, some shape, or some form. You're sitting there going, how is he going to manage that today? I'll tell you exactly how I'm going to manage that today. Do you think God knows what it's like to wait? Do you think God is above that? Do you think God is so big, so, so majestic, so, so, so transcendent that God is above beyond waiting? You might think that until you realize that Jesus told a parable in Luke 15. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a delinquent son who leaves his father disgracefully, squanders the family wealth, hits rock bottom, returns home. But you know what the twist of that story is? The twist of the story is that counterintuitive to every cultural norm at the time, because the cultural norm at the time is that the son should have, son should have actually been beaten to death or been absolutely outcast from that society culture as a whole. The story ends with the father what? waiting for his son. The twist of the story is that you have a father who waits. How long has he been waiting? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? A father of love and compassion says, is this, is this the day that he comes home? Is this the day that he comes home? Is this the day he comes home? See, I think the parable should be more aptly called the parable, parable of the waiting father because it says that we have a patient God who enters into our experience of waiting. A patient God who shares in the experience of waiting. A God knows who knows what it's like to wait. A God says, I know what it's like. I end with this verse, Isaiah 30, 18. The Lord waits for you to come to him. Why? 
to pounce on your every mistake, to condemn you for your actions, to point out your faults. Uh-uh. The Lord waits for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for him to help them. Our Father is waiting for you and me to come to him so that he can what? Show you his love. Show you his compassion because he is faithful. See, maybe the entire time you've been thinking that you've been waiting on God, maybe the truth is that God's been waiting on you to return to him, to seek him, to trust him. Do you find yourself waiting in God's waiting room in this season? I imagine many of us probably saying, God, I can't wait for this pandemic to be over. It's something we could all relate to. But maybe some of us are waiting through a personal loss or unexpected difficulty, a severe test, or a wilderness experience where you're desperately seeking answers from God, but you can't seem to find them. What I want to do for just the remaining short time today is I want to lead you through a prayer time. And these, these five prayers, short quick prayers, are things that you could jot down and we'll, we'll, we'll send them to you if you ask for them. But what I'm going to do in this corporate prayer time is this. I will simply say the prayer and then give you a moment to pray that prayer yourself and wait. Wait. And then I'll pray the second prayer. Have you pray that with me? then wait. Join me in prayer, church. Join me in prayer. For those of you that are in season of waiting, here's the first prayer. Lord, is there something you want to show me about your character, your will, and your ways through this? Pray that one more time. Lord, is there something you want to show me about your character, your will, and your ways through this? Will you pray that? And wait for a moment. Here's the second prayer. Lord, how can I love you more deeply, more passionately, and become more like you in this process? Lord, how can I love you more deeply, more passionately, and become more like you in this process? Will you pray that prayer? Pray that prayer. Lord, how can I bring you glory in this situation? Pray that prayer. Lord, how can I bring you glory in this situation? Pray that prayer. Here's the next one. Lord, is there anything that needs changing in my life or anything you want to teach me through this? Lord, is there anything that needs changing in my life or is there anything you want to teach me through this? Pray that prayer. Pray that. 
last prayer is this. Lord, please show me how I can use this experience to help someone else for the sake of your glory. Lord, show me how I can use this experience to help someone else for the sake of your glory. Pray that prayer. No matter how long it takes, I want you to be honored and glorified in every situation in my life. Father, I know, I know, I know that you plan to bring good out of evil, justice out of injustice, and redemption out of failure. Help me to surrender to you. Help me to surrender to you, for it is when I am weak that you are strong. Father, I am willing to wait on you and with you. I am willing to wait on you and with you, not just for your answers, but for you, not just for your deliverance, but for you. Teach me more about who you are in the midst of this season. In Jesus' name.